We sure had a great time celebrating Easter last week, didn't we? South Shores Church, Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, and we see him as our glorified Savior and our Lord. We're starting a new series today we're calling Hope in the Morning. It's from a little love letter written by Simon Peter called First Peter, and I'd invite you to turn there in your Bible with me. Verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. His first name was Simon, and he was one of the very first disciples of Jesus. His brother and his fishing partner, Andrew and John, had been on a quest. They'd been on a search. They were looking for something more. Their business was going well from what we can tell, but it was just uh, this gnawing sense inside. There must be something more. Am I right with God? And so the fishing buddies of uh, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, sent the younger brothers, John and Andrew, to listen to John the Baptist. They became disciples of John the Baptist. And then along came Jesus one day, and John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's found in John chapter 1. And so Andrew and John spent time with Jesus and came back to Simon and said, We have found the Messiah. And Simon said, well, how do you know? And, and Andrew said, come and see. Fortunately for them, Jesus came to their town, went to their church that Sunday, and Simon invited him home for lunch. His mother-in-law had a fever. Maybe it was coronavirus and they didn't even know. Jesus healed her and she got up and served lunch for everybody. Word got out and a whole line of people needing healing showed up later in the afternoon and Jesus healed them. And uh, then that's where he began his ministry. A few days later, he asked if he could borrow Simon's boat. And Jesus did a dramatic miracle by overloading it with fish and then uh, saying to all the fishermen, come follow me. Don't be afraid. Come fish for people and help get me catch them alive. And Simon did. And so did his brother Andrew. And so did James and John. And they were Jesus' earliest disciples. At another time, Jesus was asking the disciples, who are people saying that I am? And Peter spoke for the, uh, the group. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, this is found in Matthew 16, blessed are you, uh, Simon, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. In other words, God told you that. And on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. From that time on, Jesus gave Simon the name Peter which means rock or little rock. And he said, on this rock, I will build my church, on this foundation that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And uh, so the next thing Jesus said after giving Peter this huge compliment was, I'm headed to Jerusalem to suffer and die for the sin of the world. Peter pulled Jesus aside and said, not you, Lord. And Jesus looked at him and said, Satan, get behind me. You are a stumbling block. You don't understand the things of God, but only of men. And so Peter was up and down, up and down. And at the Passover feast, they didn't have anybody to wash feet. And Jesus started washing feet. And Peter said, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, well, then you have no part of me. So Peter flip-flopped. He says, well, then wash all of me, all, every bit. And Jesus said, no, you just need your feet. That night at dinner, Peter promised that he, Jesus, I will always be true to you. I will never forsake you, even if everybody else leaves, even if it costs me my life. And Jesus says to him, before the rooster crows in the morning, you'll deny me three times. Later that night, Jesus was arrested. He was put on trial in a courtyard. Peter's at the backside of the courtyard, warming his hands by a fire when he's accused of being a follower of Jesus. He swears up and down he doesn't even know Jesus. And suddenly he hears the rooster crow. 
And the Bible says in Luke, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus, even in that moment, was saying, Peter, I love you and I forgive you, even though you have denied me three times. Three days later, after he came back from the, the grave, Jesus, in a public situation with Peter, said, Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Simon, do you love me? Tend my lambs. Simon, do you love me? Care for the flock. And uh, Peter is commissioned by Jesus to become an apostle, which means a sent one. And so then you see Peter from there becoming quite a... Um, uh, he is the guy in the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts. He's the one gathering the disciples together to say, uh, we need to replace Judas. He's the one on the day of Pentecost who steps up and preaches a sermon and 3,000 people become believers. He's the one guiding the church as it's going suddenly through these growing pains and uh, caring for the widows. He's the one that's doing miracles in public and then getting arrested and speaking to the Sanhedrin, the very group that had condemned Jesus to death. He's put in prison, but an angel releases him so that he wouldn't be put to death in the morning. And he's the one who God uses to to take the good news of salvation uh, to the Gentiles, spilling over the Jewish uh, boundaries of uh, faith in Jesus Christ to bring it to the Gentile world. And so uh, he is uh, given this vision that God's love is going to include everybody in the world, including Gentiles. 30 years go by and uh, Peter and his wife have been missionaries. And I realized in our church, if you were to look for a model, it would be probably Ron and Barb Klein that they have given their lives to serving God globally and God has used them in dramatic ways. And Peter and his wife were the same way, sharing the good news, helping start churches. And then here Peter is in Rome and he hears this news that the churches in Asia Minor are not doing very well. And uh, so he, that is today is Turkey. And the places that are listed right there in uh, the first verses are, are places in Turkey, most of which Paul did not visit. And so this must have been where Peter was doing his work. He hears these people are struggling in their faith because, they're, because of their love for Jesus. They're being uh, cru uh, tortured and uh, they are suffering. And so Peter writes them this letter of encouragement. You know, there's a few quick lessons from Peter's life. And that is, Jesus loves you. And if he could love Peter and call him to himself, he loves you and is calling you as well. That Peter wasn't a, a brainiac. He wasn't a theologian, but he had a deep love for Jesus. And he shared Jesus wherever he went. And you and I can do the same. That we can see from Peter's life, if you slip up, then get back up. Because failure isn't final. And if God could use Peter, he can use you. He can use me. And following Jesus will cost you something. So Peter be, writes this letter that he intends to be, go to multiple churches, a circular letter that will be read in uh, many places. And uh, these believers are ha having tough times and they're suffering because of their love for Jesus. Now, we've been having tough times in our day, in our homes, in our community, in our state our country, really in our world, as this pandemic of the uh, COVID-19 has uh, gotten our attention. Our schedules have been altered. Our fun has been uh, curtailed. Times with our families have, uh, have been all in our homes and uh, our, our freedoms have been seriously restricted. And, and, but, but are we suffering? At the time this letter was written, 
Nero was Caesar in Rome, and it was a hard time to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Nero dedicated his life to debauchery and to cruelty, especially towards Christians. He died in AD 68, and he was 30 years old, which I realized he hadn't even been born when Jesus died on the cross. But four years before his death, in July of AD 64, Rome caught fire. Some say Nero set the fire, but it blazed for three days and nights, burned nearly the entire place down, and Nero had to blame it on somebody, so he blamed it on the Christians. And he tortured multitudes of Christians, fed some to lions, tied some in animal skins, and uh, crucified uh, many of them, all just for sport. Well, two results came from his cruelty. One is that and you'd probably guess the first one, persecution against Christians spread throughout the uh, entire Roman Empire. But the other one, the number of Christians increased in the days of Nero because Christians' neighbors watched them, how they lived, how they suffered, how they died, and they decided, I want what they have. They have peace. They have joy. They have love. They have hope. Well, people are watching you in this time too, Christian. And they're watching, does your faith make any difference? And Peter gives us some encouragements right here to live like a believer and to let our face, faith shine. That this is a time of, of anxiety. Everyone is feeling loss. So many people are grieving. And uh, there are lots of reasons to be disappointed. In fact, somebody said good leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. Well, Peter is writing to a discouraged, persecuted, suffering church, and uh, he is tending the flock. He is caring for the sheep as Jesus had commanded him to do. So one of the resources that we have on our website is called Right Now Ministries. And there is actually in there a synopsis of this little book and uh, some, uh, some drawings about it. I want you to get to see just part of it. The first letter of Peter. His name was Shimon, or Simon, when he first became a follower of Jesus, and he was part of the inner circle of the twelve disciples. When he made his confession that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus changed his name to Kephas, which is Aramaic for rock, which was later translated into Greek as Petros or Peter. Jesus promised that he would become a leader among the apostles to guide the Messianic community in Jerusalem through its earliest years. And that's what happened. Remember the early chapters of the book of Acts. Eventually, Peter was called to carry the good news of Jesus beyond the borders of Israel, however, and this letter was written decades into that mission in the wider Roman world. We discover at the conclusion of this letter that Peter is in Rome, which he calls Babylon, and we learn that while Peter commissioned the letter, it was actually composed by a man named Silvanus, who was a co-worker of Peter. This was a circular letter sent to multiple church communities in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. And Peter learned that these mostly non-Jewish Christians were persecuted. They were facing hostility and harassment from their Greek and Roman neighbors. And so Peter wrote to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And this helps explain the letter's design and its main 
themes. It opens with a greeting, and then it moves into a poetic song of praise to God, which introduces the key themes that are explored in the main body of the letter, where he first affirms the new family identity of these persecuted Christians, which will help them see their suffering as a way to bear witness to Jesus. And this has a way of focusing their future hopes on the return of Jesus. Well, let's look at the scriptures together. He begins that it's coming from Peter, and he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Wow, there is a lot in this little passage. And uh, let's unpack it together. First off, he calls them the elect. The elect. Now, God has created every person, but he seems to choose certain people to invite them into a special relationship with himself. And this is consistent throughout all of Scripture. God chose, for instance, Abraham in uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 12. And he has a relationship with Abraham above and beyond anything that he has with anybody else in Abraham's generation. In Genesis 18, 19, God says about Abraham, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Later on in the book of Isaiah, chapter 41, it says about the people of Israel, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Well, a huge debate has raged for centuries over who's elect and who's not, over God's foreknowledge. So do you really have free choice or is everything predetermined by God? Well, this is not the major point that Peter is making as he's beginning this love letter. And so it's not the major thing, the major point that we're going to work on today either. What we see, though, is God has his way of determining in advance what he's going to do and what is going to happen. And he's able to give the people involved free choice at the same time. Peter is talking to people who have exercised their free choice to fall in love with Jesus as their Savior and their Lord because Jesus could forgive their sin and uh, could live in their hearts, fill them with purpose during their life, and give them a home in heaven forever. And because of that, they're suffering for their faith. And Peter wants to encourage them. He reminds them, you are elect. You are chosen by God. You are precious in His sight. God would say that to us today too. You are elect, you are chosen, you are precious in my sight. They were living in a tough time. And Peter reminds them just in this verse of God the Father who planned in advance, of God the Son, Jesus Christ, who paid for their sin with his own blood, and the Holy Spirit who's doing his job of sanctification, which is drawing people closer and closer into a relationship with God himself and coming to live in their hearts and purifying their lives so their heart can be a place that's for God to live and is pleasing to God. So the term the Trinity is not in our scriptures, but here is another example of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all in the same verses. But these people are not just the elect. Peter calls them the exiles, the elect exiles. 
They're outcasts. Elect exile seems like an oxymoron. And he's saying, you are chosen by God, but you don't really fit in this world. And that's not a surprise. God's people have been that way since the beginning. They were even with the Jewish people, they never, they were God's people, but they never fit comfortably into their world because this world is not our home. It wasn't their home. God called the Jewish people and to himself and he, he chose them. They were distinct and apart. In Genesis 23, 4, Abraham says he's looking for a place to bury his, his uh, beloved named Sarah. And he says to the people he's working on buying a plot of ground. And he says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. You might heard of the term TCK. It stands for third culture kids. It's children who are in families who, for one reason or another, move out of their country of origin. So it's somebody who is born into culture A, who then grows up in culture B. And you have to ask the question, am I really part of culture A or am I part of culture B? Am I a mix of culture A and B or B and A? Or am I both? Am I neither? What am I? Because I don't seem to fit. And the answer is, you don't. Well, to be in step with God is to be out of step with this world. We're all like TCK kids when we're part of God's family in this world. He says that we're supposed to live in this world, but we're not of this world. And so Peter is writing to believers. He says, you are chosen people of God. Hello. Come along and realize you are part of a larger family. Welcome to the family of faith. Now, my mother died in 2016, and I had grandchildren born in 2019 who remind me of her. They have looks that remind me of her. They have mannerisms that remind me of her, their hands, their facial expressions, uh, and yet they have never met. But they're part of the same family, and I am the connecting link between these generations that have never met each other and won't till they're in heaven. Peter's doing some of that. He's saying the Jewish people had this connection with God, but they never fit into this world. And you, by faith, are invited into the family of God through Jesus Christ. And you never fit into this world either. And you're the same family of faith. You Gentiles now belong to the family of Abraham. And you're looking for your true home. Some of these themes will be developed later in uh, Peter's uh, little book. But uh, for now, what he's saying is you are elect exiles. You're just passing through here. This world is not your home. Your eternal home is with Jesus in heaven. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace are gifts that only God can give. And then after his opening greeting, Peter bursts into a song of praise to God. Here's what he says. Look at it with me. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We are given a new hope. Do you know, the world has hope, which is really uncertain, wishful thinking. It's based on a feeling. But we in Christ have a hope. It's a confidence based on God's promises and God's word. And so it's better. 
But let's contemplate for a moment the concept of hope. We all need hope. Life just works better if you're hopeful. It stops working when you're hopeless. I had a friend named James Kane. At one point in his life, he was a tall, intelligence, capable uh, first lieutenant Marine. He had just gotten engaged to his true love named Lillian. They lived in North Carolina when World War II interrupted their plans. And he was sent and stationed in the Philippines. And two days before he was promoted to captain, they were overrun and became POWs, along with 1,300 other men. Over the next year, their 1,300 were reduced through starvation, drownings, bombing by American planes, dehydration, discouragement, cut their numbers from 1,300 to just about 130. James Keene, however, had resolved himself, I will survive and I'll help other people to survive because my true love at home truly loves me. We're engaged and I am going to live to see that woman again and marry her. And he did. When his ship sailed in under the Golden Gate Bridge, he called her. Lillian stood up at her desk at her work in North Carolina. She picked up her suitcase that had been packed and waiting there for seven years during the entire time of their engagement. She said good day and goodbye to her boss and to the rest of her work associates. She went and got on the bus. The bus got her all the way to Dallas. By then, all transportation had been uh, taken to be used in the war effort, and she couldn't get any plane, any bus, any way to get from Dallas to Oakland, California. She finally uh, made a contract with a taxi driver and four other passengers, and he drove them to California. The next day, in the hospital in Oakland, California, Lillian, who had waited seven years to be married to Jim, married him, and the only person she knew at her own wedding was her beloved in the hospital bed. I was privileged to be their pastor and to celebrate with them on their 50th anniversary, where they gave praise to God for the hope that he had instilled in their hearts, for his faithfulness to them through that difficult time and through 50 years of marriage. So God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ gives us hope. And Peter is saying, I know God better because I know his son, Jesus. I saw him in the flesh. I got to live alongside of him. I watched him do miracles. I watched him suffer and die. I saw him after he came back from the dead. And he is forgiving. He's gracious. He is generous. He gives us hope. He, he helps us to be born again. We get to start over because of Jesus. I don't know if you ever get out and play any golf, but have you ever played golf and wished that you could have a certain shot, shot over again? I know this, that tie two is a better player than tie one, but that's not real golf. But it is real life when you invite Jesus into your heart. You get to start over, to start fresh. The Bible calls it being born again. God raised Jesus from the dead so that he could give you new life. So it's not over when you think it's over because God gives us a fresh beginning. No matter how bad our situation, we have hope because of Jesus. Jesus had said that once to a religious leader named Nicodemus. It's in John chapter 3. He came to Jesus at night 
And Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The spirit of God needs to come alive in your heart. And it's, it's a term born again because it's such a dramatic change. It's a spiritual restart. It's a, it's a do-over. It's a spiritual birth. And it's a door to a relationship that begins with God today and lasts forever. So you may be in a tough spot right now. Most of us are. Don't give up. Don't give up. Forever is a long time. But it begins with new birth, and you will never die. So relax. Rejoice. Take hope in Jesus Christ. You see, what he says right here in this passage is he gives us a new identity as God's beloved children. We've been adopted into God's family. And he gives us a new family that's centered around Jesus Christ as our older brother. And he gives us a hope that in this world that we've been reborn and that Jesus is going to return as king. And so as part of his family, he gives us an inheritance that's waiting for us in heaven. When you're born again, when you've been adopted into God's family, God has promised to share his great wealth with you in an inheritance. He doesn't keep his treasure at Wells Fargo. He doesn't keep it at Farmers and Merchants Bank. It is on deposit in heaven. You know, your inheritance didn't just take a big hit in the stock market with its recent market fluctuations. Okay, its recent market roller coaster ride. It is secure in heaven and it won't be corroded it can't be stolen it's so safe it's imperishable it's undefiled it's unfading it's waiting for you in heaven i went to high school in northern california in a rather ritzy area we didn't really fit in there very well and there were some very rich families that had students in the same classes i was in in high school and so we all went to the same school we lived in the same area but uh, you would know some of these family names if I mentioned them because they're names of businesses, hotels, that kind of thing. And uh, some of these families had set up trust funds and future inheritances that were guaranteed for their children even while they were in high school. There was one kid who sat next to me. His name is on a hotel. He was an alcoholic before he graduated from high school. And I worked at the supermarket and uh, some of these people would come into the supermarket and act like they owned the place. And some of them did. Well, on a day-to-day -day basis, we all looked the same, but occasionally this uh, topic would come up in conversation and these kids would say something to the effect, a lot of good it does me to have that huge inheritance for later. What difference does it make? I might not as even have it, but it did make a huge difference because their future was secured, at least financially. And uh, they, that wealth influenced every aspect of their life. It influenced where they went to school and who they chose as friends and what they were gonna do for their careers and how their life was gonna be. The prospect of inheriting hundreds of millions of dollars later in their life changed the way they lived. Well, it's like that for us for, as Christians. We might not think about our inheritance in heaven. It doesn't pay the rent or put food on the table today. So what good is an inher a heavenly inheritance, you might ask? How does it help me now? And the answer is perspective. Perspective. Christian, you know that no matter how hard it gets today, you have a guaranteed inheritance in heaven forever, for sure. And someday you're going to be rich. Things can be tough now, but your future is set. You have got it made. 
So don't worry about your future. You have this huge inheritance from God waiting for you in heaven. We can celebrate now what we know is coming our way in heaven. And so Peter says, God is working through your sufferings. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, generally, when things go great, we celebrate. And when things go bad, we get sad or mad. Well, who in their right mind would celebrate when troubles arrive without an invitation and they stick around, they just move in and they irritate you? When bad things, hurtful things, ugly things happen, we're more likely to cry and complain, moan, groan, feel sorry for ourselves, scream or yell. And Peter's suggesting just the opposite. He says, rejoice. Know that God is at work during your sufferings. Can you do that? Who in their right mind would choose to rejoice during their hardships? In fact, Pastor Eric was checking on one of our teenagers at church. He says, how are you doing? He says, well, I'm not thriving, but I am surviving. But Peter seems to make the point that we Christians always have more reasons to rejoice than to feel miserable. Because you might not have thought about it that way, but which is greater, your troubles or God's blessings? Your troubles or God's blessings. And rather than live frustrated and angry and depressed or overwhelmed or defeated, we have a choice to find hope in the morning. Suffering is a strange gift. Suffering has that ability to purify us, kind of like a fire purifies gold, to purify our hearts, our motives, our thoughts, our intentions. It burns away false hopes and distractions. It reminds us of our true home, our true hope. See, life's hardships actually can deepen our faith. They can make it more genuine. Oh, sometimes if we choose, they can make us bitter, but hardships can also make us better if we choose the right perspective. We don't rejoice because we suffer. We rejoice because God is using suffering to help our faith to become more genuine. And it results in praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ. And that shows that our salvation is sure. God is doing something in your suffering. So rejoice because God is at work and even in the hardest times. See, he talks about our supernatural salvation. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I mean, this is an amazing paragraph. He's basically saying you are so lucky to be alive right now. 
The angels always wanted to know these things. The prophets got little glimpses, little uh, glimmers that they would give. God would say, tell them this. They would say things that they really didn't know how and where those puzzle pieces fit together. But the prophets predicted God's salvation. They predicted Jesus' suffering. They predicted his being glorified and coming back alive. And the Holy Spirit doing his work at directing people to share the good news of salvation and the people receiving God's gift of the Holy Spirit. So you're so blessed that you're alive right now, he says. Endure, rejoice. Your future is secure in heaven. So what does that mean for students? Well, it means that this world is not your final home. So don't bank it all here, because that would be too short term. What does it say for young parents? It's saying the family of God is your truest family. So yes, invest in your family and do it well, but you are part of God's larger family. Celebrate it. And what does it say to grandparents? It's good to ask questions like, what spiritual heritage are you leaving? Are you ready for that spiritual inheritance that's going to be yours? What about people who are living alone? God never abandons his people. With Jesus in your heart, you never are alone. He is with you all the time. So our big idea is Peter saying, look what Christ has done for you. You are chosen and you've been exiled. You are the exiled elect. That you've been given a new life, a new family, a new identity, and a new future in heaven with a great inheritance. And you have hope. And none of it can be taken from you by this world. So regardless what circumstances you find yourself in, rejoice because of Jesus. Amen.